0: Our speaker this afternoon, I met for the first time out in Louisville, Kentucky. I think it was probably about 76. We had a, or maybe 77. I guess it was probably 77. And I doubt seriously if she remembers meeting me because uh, there was really no reason for it, too. But I remembered her. I think she had just been elected to uh, secretary and treasurer at, for her state committee. And she was so enthused, and she was looking for everybody for suggestions. And, oh, uh, service work to her, and it just showed all over, was just a joy. And this is what service work had been for me. It's been a joy, and I enjoyed it so much. And, of course, she went on from Blythe and uh, became her delegate for her state. And she's just finished this term, always still in her last year as being delegate. I have not heard Jackie's story. And I'm sort of glad because, but I do know this, that you don't get from recovery through unity to service without having grown in this program. And I already know about her service, and now I'm going to hear about her recovery. So I'll give you Jackie J. from Louisville, Kentucky.
1: I want to begin by thanking the State Committee for or the convention committee, for inviting me here, I think.
2: <laughs>
1: I told them that I wasn't a conference speaker. I talk loud and clear at my home group at home, or in my state committee, but uh, I'm not too good with strangers, and I got here Friday night, and I found out that I'm not with strangers. I'm with AAs and al and I thank you all for being here. I'm not from Louisville, Kentucky. My story starts really in St. Louis, Missouri. That's my hometown, that's where I was born, that's where my family is, and still are. I was the youngest of three daughters. My oldest sister is eleven years older than I, and my middle sister is six years older than I am. I came from a middle class family. My parents loved each other very much, and my sisters and I the same way. I had no big catastrophes at home, no rotten childhood. Uh, We had a religious home. I was born and raised and educated in the Catholic religion. So you see, there's no reason for me to drink there. We had one small problem that we had in our family, and it was truly a family problem. We didn't ever discuss it with anybody outside the family, and we very rarely discussed it among each other. And that was the fact that every now and then my dad would go out and he would really tie one on. And he would come home at 4, 5, 6 o'clock in the morning, and he and my mother would have these horrendous arguments and say terrible things to each other. And I would lay in my room. And I would think, how could two people who loved each other as much as I thought they did say such terrible things? And I had my own solution. My father was a plumbing contractor. He had his own business. And I thought, you know, at 3.30 in the afternoon, if he'd call my mother up and say, hey, I'm going to go out and get drunk tonight. And my mother would say, okay. And then she wouldn't fix dinner. And she wouldn't keep it on the stove. And she wouldn't watch it dry up and she wouldn't pace the floor in the living room, and she wouldn't flip off the TV at midnight and go to bed and lay there and toss and turn. And he would come in four or five o'clock in the morning and he would go to bed. He would get up the next morning, he'd just breakfast, go to work. To me, that was a simple solution, but I never said anything to anybody about it. And they never, ever tried it. And so alcoholism, reared its head head in my my very young years in that farm. In the summer of my eighth grade year, I went to work for my dad in his office, and I'd answer the telephone and I'd check the men in and out, and I did this every summer until I was a junior in high school. And during these summers, my dad and I became very, very close. He was my best friend. He philosophized and he told me stories, and I just really thought he hung the moon. And I agreed with him, and I liked the way he lived. And he had one outlook on life that he believed in. He says, you trust everybody until they give you the opportunity not to trust them, and then you give them one more chance. And he got hurt a lot doing that, he got hurt a lot. And I could see that, but I loved him. I loved him more than anything. When I was a senior in high school, they wanted me to go on to college, but I had had a taste of office work. I had had a taste of dealing with people, and I loved people. And so I had been trained to work in an office, and when I graduated from high school at 17, I went to work in a real estate insurance office. You'll notice I never noticed, I never mentioned alcohol in my life up to this point. That's because it wasn't there. I ran with a bunch of kids that were very athletic, that played football, basketball, baseball. We swam. We went on hayrides. There was no alcohol in my life at all. And I was having the time of my life. I went to work and I was working with four or five people who were a lot older than I was. In fact, my boss was about my dad's age. And uh, we had the typical office party and he would fix me a drink and hand it to me and I would take one sip and put it on the desk and that was the end of it. I continued dating the boys that I knew in high school and I met some boys through work and I dated them. And alcohol never entered any of these dates. One time, a girl that I was working with, who was about four years older than I was, came into the office and said, I would like for you to go on a blind date. And I said, hey, you know, I've never done this. And she said, but you've got to do it because I'm madly in love with this guy, and he won't go out unless I get his friend a date. Just do me a favor and go out with him. And I said, okay. We went out that night, and uh, at the end of the evening, they went off in their car, and I went in the car with this fellow. And on the way home, he said, would you like to stop and get a nightcap? Well, now, nobody had ever asked me that before. And he was about four years older than I was. He had been in the Air Force and had been discharged. And he had come back, and he had a good job and a nice car. And I thought, well, that's what, you know, the older people do. And so I said, okay. So we stopped in this little neighborhood bar that all the young people went to, and he said, what will you have? And I thought quick, and I said, I'll have a coke hide. And so we ordered a coke high and we sat there for an hour and talked, and I took a sip and let it sit there, and we went home. We had a few more dates, and each and every date it was the same thing. How about a nightcap? Until finally one night, he said, why don't you ever finish your drink? Didn't have an answer for that. And I said, oh, sure. So I picked up the coke high and I chuggalugged it. And on the way home, I got really, really sick. And I was embarrassed, and I was just, you know, as only an 18- or 19-year-old girl can be. I just thought my whole life was over. And, but he did call me a few days later and asked me for another date. And before we got out of the driveway, he says, I want to talk to you about your drinking.
2: <laughs> and I
1: thought, this is a time to get honest. And I said, to tell you the absolute truth, I don't drink. And then he asked me probably what was the most important question of both of our lives. He said, would you like for me to teach you how? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, the first thing you've got to do is quit drinking that Coke, because that's what makes you sick to your stomach. <laughs> the second thing you've got to do is quit drinking bourbon, because ladies don't drink bourbon. He said, I guarantee that if you drink scotch and water, you won't get sick. And I said, let's try it. And so we went to the nearest bar, and I ordered a scotch and water, and I drank it, and I felt good. And I ordered another scotch and water, and I drank it, and I felt better. And all the way home, he congratulated me for being such a good pupil, and I congratulated him for being such a good teacher. A year later, the three of us were married.
2: (laughs) And I
1: truly mean that there was never the two of us never and we moved into a little apartment and I continued working and after about two and a half months I started getting sick and uh, I went to the doctor and he told me we were expecting our first child it was a very bad pregnancy and at six and a half months I was taken to the hospital and we lost our first child a little girl I mentioned briefly that I was born in a Catholic family had a Catholic education, and after 12 years, I had a Catholic God. And the God that was in my mind was an elderly gentleman with a long white beard who sat in a big chair, and when I did the right thing, he smiled and shook his head, and everything was great. And when I did the wrong thing, he frowned and he shook his head, and bad things happened. And I laid in that hospital bed, and I tried to figure out what I had done that was so wrong, That this God would take the baby that I wanted so badly. And I couldn't figure any reason why he did it. And so I got angry. I got very angry. And I told him he wasn't fair, he wasn't just, and that I wanted him out of my life. That I didn't believe in him anymore, and from now on, I was going to run the show. And I left that hospital a very resentful young woman, and I went back to my home, and I went back to my job. And I'd made up my mind that I was going to lay out my own plan. Well, alcohol had always been fun for me. I had never, ever really gotten drunk. We always partied. We had beer in the house. The scotch was far and few between now that we were married. But everything we did involved alcohol. And when I came home from that hospital, alcohol did a, something different for me. It made me feel better because there was a little part inside me I didn't like, but I didn't know that then. Jackie didn't like one part of her. We stayed in that apartment about a year, and I decided we needed a new house, and we got it. I worked for a real estate company. We got a little house, and we moved in, and three years later, our first son was born. He was born prematurely. He weighed less than five pounds when I brought him home from the hospital, but he was mine. And I was so proud of him. And God didn't have anything to do with him. And my husband didn't have anything to do with him. He was mine. And I just thought that this was the greatest thing going. And I took care of him. And I tried to be a good mother. But you know, some women aren't just naturally good mothers. I loved my son. I adored him. But when he cried, or he needed a bottle, or he needed to be changed... I got uptight, I got flustered, and I didn't know which to do what. And I would watch my mother and my sister come in, and they were so at ease, and they would take care of that baby, and they would love that baby. And somewhere inside of me, I thought, you're not quite up to what they can do. You just don't quite fit the bill. But I loved them. Three years later, we had our second son, and he was just great. He weighed about eight pounds, and I brought him home, and I had two sons. And I was probably the happiest woman alive because my plan was working. I was doing the things that I wanted to do, and it was much better than anything I was sure that God had laid out for me. The drinking never increased too much this time. Uh, It made me feel better. It put down some of the doubts, some of the fears I had, but it always did what I wanted it to do. If I was angry, it calmed me down. If I was tired, it perked me up. If I was lonesome, it made me less lonesome. It did so many wonderful things to me, and I thought that it did that for everybody else, only they just didn't talk about it. I really thought that that's what alcohol's main purpose was, to make me feel better. After we had our second son, I had a lot of time at home because I wasn't working, and I decided I wanted to be the typical suburban housewife. You know, with the chain-link fence around the backyard and the swing set out there and the two-car garage with my car parked in it. And I thought, that's what Jackie wants. That's really what Jackie needs. And I set about getting it. And we bought a lot, and we had a house built. And I I wish I could tell you how great I felt the first time my husband pulled away from that house and went to work and my two sons were sleeping in their bedroom and I had the fence and I had the swing and I had my car parked in the garage. I was perfectly content and I said, you know, I really don't want anything else in the whole world. I've got it all. About six months later, my husband came home one day and he said, I've lost my job, I was fired. And he was scared and I was scared because he was scared, he had never been fired before. And so he started answering ads like mad and he wound up taking a job that meant we had to move to Cleveland Ohio and I said no my friends are here my family's here your family's here all our friends I'm not moving to Cleveland Ohio and he said but you've got to go and my dad came over and kind of read through the marriage vows again and he says you've got to go <clears throat> So I packed the bags and the movers came. This wasn't in my plan and I was very resentful. And I moved to Cleveland and we had rented a duplex. My husband traveled five and a half days a week. My boys caught every childhood disease they could possibly catch at this point. He, my oldest was six, my youngest was three. My one son had chickenpox and measles at the same time and was very, very ill. They had pneumonia. They had more things. And the resentment inside of me grew and grew because I had the responsibility of these two small boys all by myself. And I was lonely. I didn't have anybody to talk to. There were people there, but I, I couldn't reach out. I couldn't reach out. I would call home every night, practically every night, until I got embarrassed to call anymore. But I found, I found what would help. The nights I didn't call home, I would put the kids to bed, and then I'd fix myself a good stiff drink, and I'd go upstairs in my bedroom and turn on the TV and watch TV. And then I'd have another drink, and that made me feel better. And first thing you know, I'd be waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and there'd be snow on the TV and the lights would be on, and I'd think, oh, I fell asleep. This continued for about a year, a year and a half, and my husband got tired of the traveling and he took another job in Detroit, Michigan. So I packed up the bags again and took the kids and we moved to Detroit, Michigan. And I was pregnant at the time and I was gonna go back and have my baby in St. Louis. Well, it didn't turn out that way. They had to take the baby and I had my first little girl in Dearborn, Michigan. And I was ecstatic. And she was beautiful. She was perfect. And my plan was just complete. And I brought her home and for three or four weeks I was absolutely just out of it. I was so happy. And then the loneliness set in and the discontentment and all kinds of things were going on inside of me. And I started fixing drinks before dinner. And my husband didn't like his job. And he would come home and he would tell me how much he hated his job and I would tell him how much I hated Michigan and we would sympathize with each other. And then after dinner, we'd fix some more drinks, and we'd drink watching TV, and we started having arguments. Started having arguments. Really arguments that didn't make any sense, but I didn't know what was going on. Well, he finally quit the job in Detroit, and he said, we're moving to Chicago. And so I said, okay, and I packed the bags and baggage again, and we moved to Chicago. And I made up my mind that in Chicago I was going to take care of my husband and kids and the rest of the world could go hang themselves. I really was fed up with trying to make new friends and trying to get roots. And so we moved into Chicago and we got my sons into school. And the neighbors started coming with the coffee mugs and ringing the doorbell. And it didn't take me long to find out that I had moved into a real swinging neighborhood and that most of the people that lived in Chicago weren't born and raised there. None of them had relatives there. And that every day was a party. And I got involved in Cub Scouts. And I got involved in Mother's Club. And I got involved in this. And I got involved in that. And the gals on the block all ran with me. And everything we did always wound up being at somebody's house having a drink. In Chicago, I discovered what I thought probably was the most glorious drink I'd ever had in my whole life. And that was the martini. The long stem glass, the olive on the toothpick, I felt like a princess when I drank that drink. I really did. And I thought I had discovered something that nobody else knew about. Because I found that one martini could get me right where I wanted to be. It would take three or four beers. It would take two or three highballs. That one martini gave me that glow that I wanted. Two martinis made me feel better, and three martinis I didn't care. And our parties, someone always wound up getting drunk. No one thought anything of it. It was just part of the game. I wound up drunk at some of those parties, and I didn't think anything of it. Alcohol was creeping into my life more and more. We used to go to church every Sunday. Now, this is the same person that told you she had no God. But you see, I was brought up that every good mother... Dresses up her kids on Sunday, combs their hair, polishes their shoes, and walks down the main aisle of that church. And they all sit there for an hour, and they listen to what the priest has to say or who's ever up there. And then they leave, and everybody says, Isn't she a good mother? And I did that. I did that. And I sat there, and I no more believed there was a God in that building than I could fly. But I went every Sunday because we had a nice little ritual after Mass. We would go to the drugstore, and we started out buying a half a gallon of gin. And then it worked its way up to a half a gallon of gin for him and a half a gallon of vodka for me, because I like vodka martinis. And then it worked its way into who was going to serve who out of whose bottle when we had company. And then it worked up its way to my vodka bottle was getting empty before the end of the week, and so I would buy one and fill it back up so that he wouldn't know how much I was drinking. And the arguments were getting horrendous, and I was starting to black out. My kids were getting totally out of hand, and I didn't know what was wrong with them. And after I had my last daughter, they told me I couldn't have any more children. Because I had lost six children in between three children that I had, and they said no more. And so I began taking the pill. And when we moved to Chicago, they told me that you had to keep check on this thing. You know, you had to go in every six months and have a checkup. When I went to the doctor, he said, your blood pressure is very, very high. And he said, I want you to go see an internist. But I was having too much fun, and I didn't feel sick. And one day I was sitting in my family room, and my whole left side went numb. They took me to the hospital, and they told me that I had had a light stroke as a result of high blood pressure, as a result of taking the pill. Well, I cursed God again, and I yelled at him, and I screamed at him, and I told him to leave me alone, and I told him to quit picking on me, and if he'd just get out of my life, I'd be okay. And I went back home, and I proceeded to live the way I had lived. I never once thanked the therapists in that hospital or the doctors or the nurses because I didn't have a limp, I didn't have a droopy mouth, I didn't have anything. They worked very hard with me, and they gave me exercises, and I did them. And I wound up not having many results or many bad results of that stroke. Today, the only thing I can't do is open a pickle jar with my left hand. Big deal. But I never thanked anyone because my attitude at this point was the world owes me. Big me. There isn't anybody else around but me. We stayed in Chicago for four and a half years, and my husband came home one day and said, We're moving to Des Moines, Iowa. I had worked so hard to make friends, to make roots. My kids were established in clubs and scouts, and I truly, truly tried. To make a home where we were and this man comes in and says we're moving well i packed the boxes again and i packed the bags and i moved into into des moines iowa we registered the kids at school i put the stuff in the drawers i put the clothes in the closets and i closed the drapes and i drank and i drank and i drank i was still seeing an internist because of the high blood pressure One day I was in my family room and I was running a very high fever and I called him and he was in the emergency room at the hospital. And he said, come on down. He said, I'm here. I'll check you over while I'm here. When I went down, he says, you've got to stay. You've got 105 fever and I don't know what's wrong with you. So they checked me in and took a battery of tests. And he finally came in one day and he said, we're going to take a liver biopsy because he said, we think you have hepatitis. And if you do, your children have to get inoculated with some serum. And I said, okay. So they took the liver biopsy, and the next morning, this man who was usually very kind and very gentle, very sympathetic, came in. And he was so angry, he was white. And he said, why didn't you tell me the way you drink? And I said, I didn't think it was important. So he proceeded to tell me what my liver looked like and what was wrong with me. And he was really angry. And he says, but I'll tell you what, if you stay in the hospital for 12 days and take these IVs, he said, I can make your liver like new. And I laid in that hospital bed and I looked at him and I thought, you know, I'm 30 some odd years old. And if he makes my liver like new, I can drink 30 more years. (laughs) And when I'm 60, I won't want to drink anymore. (laughs) So I stayed in the hospital for 12 days. I took his IVs. I went home and recuperated for three weeks. I went in his office for a checkup. He said, your blood pressure's fine. He says, you're A-OK. He says, now remember, you just lay off those martinis. And he says, you got a long, healthy life ahead of you. And I said, oh, thank you very much, doctor. And I left his office, and I went to the nearest liquor store, and I bought a bottle of vodka, a bottle of vermouth. I went home, made a shaker full of martinis, and when my husband came home from work, we drank to my good health. No one had to tell me I was insane. All I had to do was look back in my own life, and I knew it. I was just afraid you'd find out. We only stayed in Des Moines a year. We moved back to Cleveland, Ohio. I didn't like Cleveland the first time I was there. I liked it even less the second time. We moved into a neighborhood that I hated. The kids went to a school that I hated. We belonged to a church that I hated. We lived next door to people that I hated. And I hadn't even met him. My my world was filled with hate. It was filled with hate. And with loneliness. And with resentment. And with despair. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. The beautiful, beautiful martini that I had discovered wound up to be about two or three inches of vodka in a water glass once under the faucet hot, and I didn't know what was wrong. My mother and father called, and they were going to a convention in California, and they wanted to stop on their way back and pick up my middle son, who had never flown on a plane, and take him back to St. Louis, and we were to pick him up over the Fourth of July holiday. They did come. They stayed about a day and a half, and I tried to control my drinking somewhat. My father never once mentioned my drinking. Not once. He just loved me. He just loved me. And he let me talk. And he understood me. My mother got very upset with it and tried to preach and tried to tell me. But I tuned her out. I tuned her out completely. What did she know? We were getting ready to leave. In fact, I had the bags packed, and I was waiting for my husband to come home from work, and we were going to drive to St. Louis for the 4th of July weekend. When the phone rang, and it was my aunt from St. Louis, and she told me that my father had dropped dead at work from a massive heart attack. And so my trip back to St. Louis was not the happy one that I thought it was going to be. In fact, I cried all the way from Cleveland, Ohio, to St. Louis. We got there in the early hours of the morning. And I got my mother calmed down and the kids to bed, and I went into their living room, and I sat in my father's chair. And the feeling that I had was that I was completely cut off from the world, that the one person that I knew definitely understood me and loved me was gone, and that I really, truly was alone. I went to the funeral And I went back to Cleveland and I began drinking. I had seen a doctor in Cleveland because I had to keep getting checkups because I kept carrying high blood pressure. And I had gone to this young GP and uh, I had told him the way I drank. And after I told him the whole story, he reared back in his chair and he looked at me and he folded his arms and he said, Young lady, I can see no reason in the world why anybody would have to drink the way that you drink. He said, furthermore, he said, I don't want you for a patient. He said, I think what you need is a good psychiatrist. And he reached in his desk drawer and he threw a card across the desk at me. And I was just crushed. And I left his office thinking I would never, never again tell anyone the truth about my drinking. And I went home and I told my husband that this guy thought I was crazy and we both had a good laugh and a good drink because we both knew I wasn't crazy. But when I came back from my my dad's funeral I had such weird feelings that I was frightened. The fear started creeping in and I called the psychiatrist and I told him who had recommended me and I told him half truths and half lives. But I did tell him about my dad's death and the way I felt. That was the truth. And he said, You really gotta get into the office and I told him I didn't have a car and that I had young children and I lied through my teeth. <laughs> And he said, well, you've got to get into the office, but in the meantime, I'll send something out to you. And it wasn't long, and the doorbell rang, and my friendly druggist was there, and he handed me a sack. And I opened the sack, and it was a nice big bottle of Librium, and it said, take three times a day or as needed. And for the first couple of days, I took it three times a day, and then I took it or as needed. (laughs) You know, I really, truly didn't know that that meant less than three times a day. I really didn't and so I had the Librium and I had the vodka or I had the scotch or I had whatever was there and somehow or another I felt better and it wasn't much longer than we got another phone call and my brother-in-law who was 42 at the time died of cancer in St. Louis and we went back and I didn't tell anyone but when I went back to that funeral just a month or so later I saw my father all over again and I was frightened and I really thought that I was going insane. And I couldn't wait to get back to Cleveland and call the psychiatrist and tell him what had happened, and he said, you've really got to get in here. And I gave him the same song and dance again, and he said, well, apparently what I sent you isn't working. I'll send you out something else. And the druggist came again with another sack, and I opened it, and it was a nice big bottle of Librium, and it said take three times a day or as needed." So I had the Librium, and I had the Valium, and I had the Scotch, and I had the vodka. And somehow or another, I didn't feel. I couldn't feel anything. And a month or so later, my husband was an only child, and his father died of a heart attack. And we went back to St. Louis. And I don't remember that funeral. I don't remember it at all. But I remember all the sympathy I got. Poor Jackie, traveling all over the Country with those little kids packing and unpacking. You know, she's very nervous. She's taking medication. They would remind me when to take my pills. I ate it up, ate it up. But I went back to Cleveland and I got in that house and I was with me and I didn't like me. And I was frightened and I was afraid and I was lonely. And so I closed the curtains again and I took the pills and I drank. And I drank, and I drank. And I didn't know if it was morning. I didn't know if it was night. I didn't know much of anything because I couldn't feel. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. I didn't know what was wrong with me. My typical day was I would get up in the morning, and I would go in the dining room, and I would sit at the table. And my husband would come out, and he would be dressed in a, in a suit and a white shirt and a tie. And I would hate him. And he would go in the kitchen and he would fix his breakfast. And then he would leave and sometimes he would say goodbye and sometimes he wouldn't. Then my older son would come out and he would go in the kitchen and he would fix breakfast, be it oatmeal or dry cereal or poached eggs or soft-boiled eggs, for himself and for the two younger children. And they would come in at the table and they would sit with me and no one would say a word. And they would eat their breakfast. And when they were finished, my older son would clear the table and they would go back in and finish dressing. And then my daughter would come out and she would sit in a chair. And my son would come out with a hairbrush. And he would tie her shoes. And he would comb her hair. And I would sit there and watch. And I would think that this is the daughter I wanted all my life and I couldn't even brush her hair and I didn't know what was wrong with me and when they would leave I would drink and I would drink and the days ran into weeks and eventually my husband called the psychiatrist and they took me in and he said hospital and I thought he meant a general hospital but he didn't he meant a psychiatric hospital and when I got there and I saw the keys in the elevator doors and the doors with doorknobs on one side, and the strange people sitting in the TV room. I screamed inside, and I said, I'm not crazy. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm not crazy. And then there there would be days where I would think that I belonged there. I was in that hospital for six months. The psychiatrist told me that I had living problems. And if they could solve my living problems, that there would be no more need for me to drink. And I stayed there, and they worked with me. And after six months, they sent me home to a house that I hated, to a husband that I hated, to children that I hated. And they told me to get well. And I tried. I really tried. And then one day, I picked up a drink. And I knew that that was the beginning of the end. And so I thought, in my own alcoholic fog, that if my husband went out and met this really neat lady and they fell in love, he would bring her home, and my kids would meet her, and my kids would love her more, would love her more than they ever loved me, and she would love them, and they would get married, and they would live happily ever after, and everyone would forget about me. And so one day when my husband was going out of town and my kids were at school, I went around the house and I collected every pill that I had, and I had a lot of them. I took each and every one of them, and I fixed myself a strong, strong drink, and I drank that, and I walked into my bedroom, and I laid down on the bed, and it was the happiest day I had had in years, because I knew that when I went to sleep I was never going to wake up, and I was grateful. But the same God that I pushed out of my life, that I said I didn't want anything to do with, made my husband call from the Ohio Turnpike. And he asked my son how everything was going. And my, my son said, everything's okay, but Mom's sleeping funny. And he turned around and came home, and they discovered what I did. And I was wound up back in the psychiatric hospital. And I woke up about two or three days later. And it was truly the saddest day of my life. I tried suicide twice again after that. I was in and out of that hospital like a ping-pong ball. And it was in one of these hospital stays that I met a lady who called me an alcoholic. And I really wasn't insulted and I really didn't care because I didn't know what an alcoholic was. But I had learned one thing, that you never argue with anybody in a mental hospital. And so I let her call me an alcoholic and I let her run around after me with the big book underneath her arm and she would quote to me from, from it. She would read to me from it. She would drag me to meetings in the a hospital that they had there. But I don't remember what they said. Because I learned one thing in AA that I am an alcoholic and anytime I put a mind-altering drug in this body, this mind doesn't work. And I was taking pills to wake up in that hospital. I was taking pills to go to sleep in that hospital. I was taking pills to calm me down and to get me up. You name it, I took a pill for it. And there was no way that AA could get to me in that hospital. When I was discharged, I would go home and I would go to, to meetings in Ohio. She would take me. The people there never said anything uh, about my taking the pills. The only thing they do is look at me and say, your eyes look funny. And that didn't register. The only thing I knew that when I went to an AA meeting, I didn't drink. And I truly didn't drink if I was going to a meeting, but I missed a lot of
2: meetings. (laughs)
1: They had directories there where you give your sobriety date, and every time I went to a meeting, I changed it. They were very kind to me there, but it didn't click. It didn't click. One day, my husband came in and said, we're moving to Louisville, Kentucky, and I said, whoopee. And we got out the map, and I had to find it on the map because I didn't even know where it was. And my mother had to come and move because at this point, I was incapable of moving myself. I sat in a chair, and I drank most of the time. That's all I did. We moved to Louisville about the end of October. My mother stayed until the day after Thanksgiving. I'm sure to make sure that my children had Thanksgiving dinner. I took her to the airport, and I knew that I would never see her again. And what really bothered me, I didn't care. I didn't care about anything. And from the day after Thanksgiving until December the 18th of that year, I have no idea what I did. Moving to Louisville was like Christmas to me. I had been in, around state stores for four years or more, and in Louisville there's a liquor store in every block. There's booze in the, in the grocery stores, and you can even go in the drugstore and buy booze, and to me that was wonderful. I know I drank. I know I made the beds and did the dishes, and maybe every once in a while I cooked a meal, but I don't recall any of it. On the morning of December the 18th, I walked down my steps, and there was a paper on the kitchen table. And there was a column outlined in bold black, and at the top of the column was the word help. And underneath the word help was the number of Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to the telephone, and I dialed it, and I talked to Bill W., and he told me something I don't know. But then he ended with saying, there'll be a lady that will come out and see you. I hung up the phone and promptly forgot what I did and a few hours later the doorbell rang and there was a very attractive woman standing there and she said hello my name is Helen and I'm from Alcoholics Anonymous may I come in and talk to you I was a mess my house was a mess but she came in and she talked to me and she stayed for quite a while and then finally she stood up and she said I really have to apologize but I have to leave she said I'm having 22 people from my dinner to my house for dinner tonight This was the week before Christmas. And she said, I've got some last-minute things to do. But she said, I will have someone call you and they'll take you to a meeting. And she left. And that lady will never know what she did. Because that was the first time that anybody had apologized to me for anything in years. I was a thing. I was an it people talked over me, around me, they put me places, but nobody ever apologized. My eyes were open and I walked, but I was dead inside. And that lady gave me a little hope that maybe there was someone in the whole rotten world that cared what happened to me. I went to my first AA meeting. And I don't remember anything that was said, but I sat in the room, and I looked around, and I saw people smiling. And I sat there, and I thought, oh, my God, I wish I could smile. It's been so long. And they told me that if I just kept coming around and trying to do the things that they advised, that I could stop drinking. And so I came to meetings. And I couldn't even complete a sentence. I couldn't keep a thought more than a minute. And people were kind to me. And as Chico said the other night, they would come up and want to shake hands with me and I would put my hands behind my back because I didn't want anyone to touch me because I couldn't stand me. And the love that I felt in this room and all rooms was unbearable. I just didn't think that that much love existed. And I was embarrassed when people tried to shove a little bit of it in my way. And the first thing I learned in AA is that I didn't really know what love was. I was a wife and I was a mother and I had no idea what what love was. And I found that love was calling you up in the morning and just asking you how you were. Love was going to a meeting and afterwards saying, you want to go out and get a hamburger? Love was sitting next to you at the meeting and saying, hey, I'm glad you're here. Love was having one of the men come up to me and say, hey, you're looking better. Love was so many things that I never knew. And little by little, I got spoon-fed love. And after love came trust. And that was a hard one. That was a real hard one. The lady, who is my sponsor now, drove me home from a meeting one night, and she said, You know, in AA we don't take pills. And I didn't know that. I really didn't know that. Because, you see, my doctor had told me that I was a very nervous, high-strung person and that I would have to take medication for the rest of my life. When I was in that hospital, I was given a series of 22 shock treatments. They didn't help, but they sure make you nervous. (laughs) And so he told me, he said, you can't live without medication. But I got out of the car that night and I went into my kitchen and I said, you know, I really am a member of AA because I haven't drank. So I took those pills and I threw them in the waste can. And I went upstairs and I went to sleep and I slept for eight full hours. Now to some of you that doesn't mean anything. But at that point... It was taking me anywhere from four to six sleeping pills to get an hour or two of rest. I didn't sleep long. But I had eight hours that night. And the next morning I got up and I completely forgot what I had done. And I went down to get my medication and it was gone. And I stood at my kitchen sink a long time and it finally dawned on me what I did. And I just as quickly said, I don't want to be a member of AA. And so I went to the waste can to get out my pills, and someone had emptied it. And I said, that's okay. They're in, the way- and they're in the trash can, and they're all in glass containers. So I opened the back door, and I was going to go out to the trash cans. And when I did, I saw them that they were upended on the street. The trash man had come. Now, I knew I was in trouble because those were prescriptions from Ohio. And I was in Kentucky, and I didn't have a doctor and I had tried suicide three times and if I called my psychiatrist in Ohio and said I threw my pills in the waste can he would no more believe that than fly (laughs) and so I was a member of AA that day I was sick that day I was sick that night I was sick the next day and I thought I was going to die and I told my husband no matter what I do or no matter what I say Do not call a doctor. Do not take me to a hospital. Don't call anybody. Because I truly believed if I was that sick the second night I was going to die. And why not? And why not? I didn't die, but I was awful sick. And I was awful dumb because I didn't tell anybody in AA what I was doing. And it took me months and months to get over what I had done to me with medication I was in AA a year and got my token and still hadn't made up my mind whether I wanted to live or not. That's what you call a slow learner. That's what you call holding on. That's what you call a dead brain that can't think. But that's the way it was. All I knew that I was in the middle of a lot of love and I liked where I was and I didn't drink. At the end of that year... They told me that I ought to get into something, you know, that coming to meetings was fine and being able to make more than one, making two or three sentences in a row was fine, but you got to give it away in order to keep it. And I didn't know what they were talking about because I didn't have anything to give away. And I had a home group and I had a sponsor and I believe in that sincerely because I couldn't have made it without either one. And uh, anyway, at the end of that first year, they said, we need an intergroup representative and you're it. And I said, I don't know anything about intergroup. And they said, that's okay. Go down and learn. And I went to a meeting once a month for one hour, and I met alcoholics from all over the city. And I found out that they had just as much love and they had just as much program, and they were really neat people. They lived on the south end of town, and I lived on the east, and we were all the same. And I learned a little bit about what made AA work in our city and how important it was. And I did that for a year my kids were getting better and i was trying to work desperately on my marriage because you see now there was only the two of us i had taken away one of the ingredients of my marriage and we looked at each other and we said who are you and we didn't know i didn't care to drink and my husband had lost a drinking putty he went to Al-Anon the same day that i went to aa And they told us, you just keep working at it and it will all straighten itself out. But it's going to take work. And so my sponsor told me that meetings at this point were not enough for me. Because if I stayed on the fringes of AA, I would fall off. That I had to get right into the middle of it. And in that way, I'd be all right. And so I took intergroup representative for another year. And I loved it. And I enjoyed it. And at the end of that year, I told my home group, hey, you know, there's other members of this group. You need somebody else for intergroup. And they said, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're really right. Uh, So-and-so is going to be intergroup representative. Now you can be the general service representative. And so I went to a general service meeting, and I met people from all over the state. Now this was something else again. And you know what? They were just like me. And they had the same love. And they had a lot of program. And I found out that I was probably one of the luckiest people alive that I got to come with these people. And other people were back there just going to meetings, and they didn't know all this was going on. And so I love being a general service rep. And one day I went to an election meeting, and uh, one of the men was running a meeting, and he says, Who could write down there? And I was sitting in the first row. He says, Come up here and tally the votes. And I went up to the blackboard, and I was tallying the votes, and somebody said, well, now we need a secretary. And somebody nominated me, and the first thing you know, they had a vote, and I was the new secretary of the state committee. It just you know, just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I learned more about AA in the years that I served as state uh, secretary than I ever imagined. I learned. I I met people from other states. My whole world was getting larger, and I didn't even know it. I didn't even know what was opening up for me. I was so busy in the middle of it and enjoying it so much that I just didn't know what was happening. After I was sober in AA for about five years, I had learned. One thing I had learned from the people in AA was how to make a decision, and I had never done that before, not for a long time. And I could make little decisions, and then I could make a little bigger decisions. And one day, it came to the point in my marriage where I had a decision to make. And it was to stay married to my husband and drink with him and go back to the relationship we had because that's what he wanted. Or it was not to drink and get a divorce and try it on my own. And somehow or another, all those years of service work, and all those years of love that I had gotten into meetings, I couldn't see fit to give up. I just couldn't. Not to die, because now I wanted to live. Now I was excited with life. And so I got that divorce, and it was against my religion, and I'm not proud of it, but it saved my life. And for that I'm grateful. Because you see, the God I have now doesn't shake his head and frown at me. No more of that. No more guilt. No more resentment. The God I have now loves me. He is with me all the time. And when I'm wrong, he says, idiot, try it again. And when I'm right, he says, well, I expected it. You know? He's, he's really a God that I can talk to. And I talk to him a lot. And he's with me here today. He's back home with my kids. He is such a warm, close friend that he has filled the void in my life that I never thought possible. When I lost my father, I thought I had lost my world. And now God is my world. And he understands me. And he loves me. And that's what AA gave to me. After that divorce, I went to work in real estate, naturally, because that's the only thing I knew. And I went to another election for the state committee, and uh, somebody else put down the marks for the ballots. And I sat there, and somebody nominated me for delegate, and it went in the hat. And I thought, good, it went in the hat. And guess whose name got pulled out of that hat? And I was very grateful sitting in that room because I consider Louisville, Kentucky my home, because that's where I was born. I lost me a long, long time ago, and I found me in Louisville. And you can't imagine the pride and the gratitude when I went to New York and they called out the state of Kentucky, and I said, present. It just oozed from every poor. This grateful alcoholic was representing her people. I never dreamed that that was anything that I could ever do in my whole life. I went to New York for two years and I enjoyed every minute of every day and I met people from all over the country and from Canada and I brought all the news that I possibly could back to my people on the state committee. And I'm enthused. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I think you would be if it saved your life. And it did. Service work kept me going. My oldest son is 22 years old now. Uh, he's married and has been married for three years. He loves me, and I know he loves me because he told me so. He can do that now. He's a junior in college. He's got another year to go, and I think he's going to be all right. My other son is 19, going on 20. He'll be 20 in March. He still lives at home. He'll be a sophomore at UofL this year. And uh, he likes booze, and he likes pot. He sells a little of it. I threw some of it away and uh, you know they tell us in AA if you walk like a duck and you talk like a duck you might be a duck he might be a duck (laughs) but you know I learned in the third step of this program that I can let him go and he can do his thing and if someday he winds up in a room like this surrounded by people who love him that would probably be the best thing in the world I could wish for him I would like for him to join me if it's necessary and so I leave that to my God that's his choice he can do with him what he wants my daughter is 15 she will be 16 the second of July she's a beautiful young lady And we have our ups and we have our downs. And sometimes she's glad she's got a mother and sometimes she's not. But, you know, I was late meeting Aurelia at the airport Friday. And I apologized to her. And I said the reason I was late, that a few minutes before I left, my daughter asked me to braid her hair. And, you know, when she asked me to do her hair now, I can't turn her down. And so I've got another chance. And that's what this program gave me. The right to brush my daughter's hair. I could go on and on and on about the things that have happened to me in sobriety. Because it truly is a whole new life for me. And there is not a day, not a day, that I wake up and I don't think... I'm glad I'm alive some days are better than others but I'm glad I'm alive I came back from this last conference and uh, I got a nice surprise I have been dating a man in out in AA for about a year and uh, I accepted an engagement ring and I don't know when we'll be married but it will be soon and I'm very happy I'm very very happy Because this alcoholic knows who she is. If I could wish you anything, I would wish you love. Love every day of every week of every month of every year. Because that's what makes us well, is love. My name is Jackie and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jackie, for sharing with us. And this marriage will work, I know. (laughs) Let's stand again and close this meeting, if you will, with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father,
2: who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven.
0: Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And use us not temptation, but deliver us from evil.
2: For mine is the kingdom,
0: the power, and the glory, forever and ever.
2: Amen.